0: Mark chapter one, let's dive right in, verse nine. So it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I'm going to begin this morning's message by making a simple observation that reinforces an earlier critique that we made last week of the Gospel of Mark. In some ways, this critique, this observation, gives us, provides for us a bit of a recap first, Mark is telling us, as he defined in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the story. He's introduced us to the hero. He's called him Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The prophets had foretold that there would be a final prophet who would prepare the way for his coming. So, it's logical that Mark would start with an examination of John the Baptist, this forerunner, as we called last week, the advanced man. Now, all of this makes logical sense to me, but following the seven verses that John uses to summarize John's ministry, Mark uses to summarize John's ministry, he then dives right into the baptism of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe I'm overthinking it. But this flow, this intro, the beginning of this story, it seems kind of strange to me. It seems odd that this is how Mark would transition from telling us about the advanced man to then diving into the life of Jesus, beginning with the baptism of Jesus. I mean, think about the things that Mark excludes from his narrative. Mark overlooks Jesus' supernatural birth. No immaculate conception, no mention of Mary or Joseph. Mark skips over the Christmas story entirely. No mention of angels in the fields, shepherds watching over their flocks, no room in the inn or wise men from the east, all omitted. Mark doesn't include a single shred of information about Jesus' upbringing. Not one detail. He doesn't include any family information. He doesn't provide any genealogical cursors. The question this morning that I want to begin with is why would Mark exclude these important details from his account when he would have clearly been exposed to the information? It's not as though Mark doesn't give us these details because he was unaware of them. Mark is gaining his account, remember, from the the apostle Peter. Peter is telling Mark these things. He's recounting the story from his perspective. Mark's been exposed, I'm sure, to all of these details. So why exclude the Christmas story, Jesus' upbringing, his childhood, his family, his genealogy? The answer is that when you're presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant, and when you're presenting him as a slave, to a Roman world made up mainly of slaves? Isn't it true that none of these details matter? I mean, no one cares about a slave or a servant's birth, or his upbringing, or his family, or his heritage, which leaves us with a healthy reminder of two interesting points. One when approaching the gospel of Mark, always remember he is writing with a singular purpose. He is presenting Jesus as a servant. And secondly, since Mark wrote his account first, this kind of explains why the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, begin their narratives the way that they do. Both Matthew and Mark include details that Mark omitted. Both Matthew and Luke give us, right, the Christmas story. They both give us details about the shepherds and the wise men. They both even provide for us some genealogy, things that Mark omitted because they didn't fit with his narrative. Now, before we unpack the significance of the baptism of Jesus, before we unpack the significance of the event we just read, I wanna take an opportunity to establish the way that we're going to approach the various stories we'll face in Mark. I don't know if you've realized this about me and about my style of teaching, about the way that I process things. I like to be logical. I like to be systematic. Ultimately, I like to be orderly. And so I wanna communicate right up front when we look at a story When we look at a narrative in the Gospel of Mark, I want to be very upfront how we're going to approach that narrative so that we can unpack the most we can with context and clarity. First, we'll always begin with discussing the scene of activity. We'll talk about what the text is actually saying. We'll examine the story. Oftentimes, when we read the narrative... In a gospel account, especially when we're familiar, so often we don't get ourselves into the scene. Now, maybe this is just my history of youth ministry, but I love to jump into a time machine almost of the mind. I love to go back and try to get myself in the scene. I try to be a bystander, an observer. And so our first approach with every narrative will be to actually just discuss the scene of activity. This is what's happening so that we understand what's taking place. The second approach is that we'll then address any relevant questions, maybe not particularly addressed by the text. Thirdly, we'll make some simple observations that will help us dig below the scene of activity and enable us to uncover the deeper significance of what's taking place. So, three approaches. We'll examine the scene of activity, we'll look at the relevant questions, maybe not addressed in the text. We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God. There are obvious things that will jump out. Sometimes there, you know, some complexities, some honest questions, some skeptical examinations. This morning, we wanna make sure we examine those and not skip over them, and then we make some observations to kind of peel back the surface and dig below the surface uh, of what's happening. So let's begin this morning, examining the baptism of Jesus. Let's start with the scene of activity. What's happening? John, John the baptizer, is preaching a message, as we saw last week, that centralizes itself on the coming of the Messiah. He makes it clear. There is coming one after me whose sandal straps I am not even worthy to unloose. And I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message focuses on this coming Messiah. And so many people are flocking to the Jordan, are coming out to the wilderness, are responding to the message That John, according to Josephus, is baptizing over a thousand people a day. This is what's taking place. Now Jesus, Jesus travels a great distance. We're told from Nazareth of Galilee, which means he goes from Nazareth down what's referred to as the Valley of the Doves, which connected Nazareth with Capernaum. He then makes his way around the Sea of Galilee and then down almost the entire length of the Jordan Valley to Bethabara, which is where John was baptizing. Jesus travels this distance, he gets himself to the scene, he's listening to John preach. And then Jesus waits in line. If you're baptizing over a thousand people a day, You can imagine that this was a time-intensive process. Jesus hears the message. He waits in line for hours to be baptized. It's his turn. Jesus enters the water, and he approaches John the Baptist. Now, Mark's account of what happens next is very cut and dry. John baptizes Jesus. When Jesus emerges out of the water, we're told, the heavens part. Literally, the terminology here in the original language is that the sky is violently torn in two. This is an awesome scene. The Spirit then descends upon Jesus. We're told by Mark that the Spirit looks like a dove. I want to note that the Spirit wasn't a dove. In Calvary Chapel circles, we kind of have an affinity and an attraction to the actual dove. I don't really have much of an attraction to the dove. In Calvary circles, it becomes in some ways an icon. For me, it's like a dove, not a literal dove. It's a descriptive term to describe what's happening. The spirit descends like a dove. And then what happens? We're told that there is a literal, audible voice that came from heaven that affirmed to Jesus that you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So this is the scene, the scene that Mark's describing, which now leads us to our first relevant question. Who witnessed the event? Was this an event for Jesus's eyes only? Was it something Jesus shared with John, just between Jesus and John the Baptist? And then Jesus would later communicate what happened to his disciples at a later date? No doubt, Peter then recounts the story to Mark, Mark getting the information third-hand. Was this an event witnessed by everyone present? Now, according to Scripture, we know without a shadow of a doubt first that Jesus witnessed the event. I mean, Mark tells us, he's very clear that Jesus saw these things taking place and no doubt relayed the events to his own disciples, maybe a few who were present, the remainder who weren't present for the event itself. So we know Jesus witnessed the event. Secondly, it's also clear that John the Baptist witnessed the event. Now Mark doesn't tell us this, But in John chapter 1, verses 33 through 34, we read John the Baptist's own account of the day's events. I'll read it for you. He says, I did not know him, speaking of Jesus, but he who sent me, speaking of God, to baptize with water told me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, And I testify that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. It's clear from John, the Gospel of John's account that John the Baptist witnessed the event because according to John's own words, the event of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus was God's way of communicating to John who the Messiah actually was which is interesting to me. John the Baptist was preaching that there was coming a Messiah. I think personally John knew or at least had a strong inclination that it was his cousin Jesus. Don't forget that was, John was in the womb of Elizabeth and Mary comes to visit uh, Elizabeth that we're told that John jumped in the womb. I think with John and his history and his background, the narrative of his own story, the supernatural aspects of it, his relational connection to Jesus, I think John had an idea that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah. But apparently God communicated to John and pressed on John's heart that the confirmation of who the Messiah was would take place when John witnessed the Holy Spirit coming down and resting upon the individual. So we know Jesus saw what was taking place. We know John the Baptist saw what was taking place from his own words. But I think it's also clear that everyone present witnessed the event. Now this leads us to an interesting complexity to our story. Mark records God's words as they were personally directed to Jesus. This audible voice that comes from heaven to Jesus, it's very personal, isn't it? Look back at what's said. We're told, you are my beloved son. Now Mark is getting his story from Peter, who is probably getting his story from whom? From Jesus himself. And so Jesus, as he's recounting what's taking place, personalizes what was communicated. Now what's interesting, is that Matthew chapter three, verse 17 indicates that the message was also a declaration to everyone who was present. Matthew's account records the audible words from heaven as this. He says, this is my beloved son. So Mark's account personalizes it. Matthew's account generalizes it. Now I don't see a conflict here. I just see how the two authors gain information. Jesus recounts to Peter, who recounts to Mark, the message as it was personally from the Father to the Son. Matthew, whether he was present, and there's a, a case to be made that Matthew could have been present to the scene itself, whether he was present, or whether Matthew gained his details from eyewitness accounts of those who were actually present, he says that this voice that came from heaven was also a declaration to everyone else because the words were, this is my, this, it was a public declaration. declaration. And so it seems evident to me that everyone who was there, everyone who witnessed this scene understood the magnitude of what was taking place. I think also this explains why following this scene, we're told that immediately Jesus left And went into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. I think everyone knew the significance of what took place. This violent tearing apart of the sky. Seeing something descend and rest upon Jesus. Like the the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, this audible voice from heaven. I think everyone was kind of like in awe and shock as they witnessed what was happening. To the point that they were ready to then maybe make Jesus king and then Jesus slips away. I think everyone present witnessed the event. Now the second relevant question from this text, I think is an important one. Our question is why would Jesus choose to be baptized? I mean, why would Jesus choose to be baptized? And then as the skeptic would say, was Jesus responding? to John's message and repenting of sin. I mean, as we looked at last week, John's message was a message of repentance for the remission of sin. In response to the message, John gave some action, be baptized. We see Jesus coming, being exposed to John's preaching, sensing the need to be baptized. So as the skeptic would throw out, was Jesus Jesus repenting of sin? Now, before we look at the answer to the question, I want to first address the question itself. Truthfully, most of a skeptic's questions often refute themselves because they're poorly conceived and they're often birthed not from an honest examination wanting to gain information, but often just being a punk, being critical. Now, though the common skeptic's critique of the baptism of Jesus would be why would Jesus choose to be baptized? Was he repenting of sin? Personally, I think that this isn't a very smart question. I think it's actually a pretty stupid question and lacks a certain level of creativity. Think about it like this for a moment. If in examining the life of Jesus, we're going to start asking, why did Jesus choose? Questions. I can personally think of many more relevant, interesting, even pressing questions than that of Jesus' baptism. I mean, for example, if Jesus had the will to choose, why would Jesus choose to die on the cross? Why wouldn't he come up with a different way? Why would Jesus choose to grow up in Nazareth? What a lame place to live. Kind of like a glorified truck stop. Like if you could choose anywhere to live. Why would you live in Nazareth? Why would Jesus choose to be a middle schooler? I mean, we're told in Luke's account that Jesus was 12 years old. If I could do anything because I'm God, I'd skip sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I mean, let's be honest. The middle school years are the most awkward years in a human being's existence. I'd skip it if I could choose Why in the world, if if Jesus could choose, would he choose to be birthed through a vaginal canal? I mean, really, let's be honest. If you could be born anyway, that experience, the fluid and the blood and the just intense aspects of it. I mean, I would just float down from heaven wrapped in swaddling clothes. I'd skip that whole process if I could choose. Really? Really? Why would Jesus choose Judas to be his disciple, knowing that he would later betray him? You see, I mean, if we get into this this exercise of reading and looking at the life of Jesus and start throwing around, why did Jesus choose to do this? Man, it opens Pandora's box. My point is, asking why did Jesus choose questions really becomes a ridiculous exercise, the more apt question we should be asking is rather what insight do I gain about Jesus by the choices that Jesus made? Why did Jesus choose to do this? Why did Jesus choose to do that? I don't know. He did. The question I should be asking is he chose to do it that way. So now what do I learn? What do I gain? What insight do I grasp from the person of Jesus? Now, just so I'm not accused of dodging a question, though I think it's a ridiculous question, let's answer the question anyway. Was Jesus baptized because he was repenting of sin? Answer, no. There you go. Now, I'll give you three easy reasons why we know Jesus' repenting of sin wasn't his motivation for being baptized. First, the text doesn't tell us this, simple. Mark doesn't indicate in his account that repentance for sin was Jesus's motivation for being baptized. To attest otherwise would be making a radical claim without any substantiating proof. The text simply doesn't say that was his motivation. Secondly, John's reaction to Jesus being baptized indicates the opposite conclusion. Now, this is not in our story here in Mark, but in Matthew's account, he further explains that John knew Jesus didn't need to repent of sin and would have preferred if Jesus would instead baptize him when Jesus enters the water. Matthew's account gives us a detail Mark doesn't that John was like, I'm not baptizing you. As a matter of fact, you need to baptize me, indicating that John knew that Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the remission of sin, and that instead Jesus was much holier, more righteous than John was. Jesus refused, John only baptized Jesus because Jesus gave him a command and he did it out of obedience. The third explanation, the third reason is that the notion of his motivation being repentance of sin, it doesn't fit within the rest of the precedent of scripture. There are countless other passages we don't have time to look at in the Bible that emphatically affirm the sinlessness of Jesus so that he could be a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind. Jesus' detractors could have inflicted a death wound to his earthly ministry if there had actually been a skeleton in Jesus' closet that he needed to repent over. The Bible is clear, though, that all of those that opposed Jesus, they could find no fault in the character of Christ. Which brings us back to the better question. What insight do I gain about Jesus by the choice he made to be baptized? Which leads us to our first observation. The first observation that we can make off the baptism of Jesus, this story, is that Jesus came to identify with me. It's a simple observation. The intention behind Jesus's baptism was identification, not repentance or salvation. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. It's simple. He didn't need to, but he did. He wanted to. Why? Because he wanted to be identified with sinful man, so that sinful man would later identify with him when they needed a savior. I mean, think about it this way. When someone goes out of their way to identify with you by getting down into your muck and mire, especially when you know they don't have to, doesn't it earn a certain level of credibility? My brother, Nick, works on a golf course. He has a degree in turf grass management. He's kind of cutting his teeth in the golf course industry. And one of the things that we were talking about the other day, one of the lessons that he's learning as an assistant superintendent, is that he was blown away. They, They were gonna lay out this whole big mess of sod. They got all the crew together. They had all the sod delivered. It was a brutally hot day. One of those 95 degree summer days in July. They start getting out, throwing sod around. And what happens? The superintendent, the boss, the guy that spends most of his day in the air conditioning, the guy that's the money man, the head honcho, drives his golf cart over. He's wearing nice khakis and a button down shirt because that's part of his job description. And he gets out with the crew and he starts throwing sod around. And he's on his hands and his knees and he's, he's covered in sweat, covered in dirt, covered in muck. But the crew, the crew knew he didn't have to, that he didn't need to. But because he chose to identify, it was a rallying point. And Nick said, man, I learned a lot by observing him. That you know, when the guy above gets down below, and identifies with the common man or the common employee, doesn't it earn a certain level of credibility and connection? You see, Jesus came to be identified with sinful man so that at some point, sinful man would identify themselves with Jesus when they needed a savior. So much of Jesus's life served the function of identification. Jesus submitted to human authority, when all of creation submitted itself to his authority. Jesus offered sacrifices at the temple when he would later be the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. When he could have easily spoken all things into existence. He didn't need to work with his hands. He could have just spoken and boom, rocking chair. Identification. I mean, really, Jesus walked from place to place to place when he could have teleported. So much of what he did served the role of identification. Jesus suffered grief and loss. He wept and experienced disappointments. He dealt with physical pain and emotional toil. Why? For what purpose? To what end? To identify with us. What I learned from this story is that Jesus didn't come as some radical, goody-two-shoes, above-the-fray spiritual sage who would speak to the multitudes with grandiose terminology that would sail over the common man. Jesus didn't come to speak to the human condition from some lofty, removed spiritual perch. Rather, Jesus came as a common man for the common man to save the common man. Ultimately, the identification process would manifest itself in the most extreme way possible when according to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And then he would endure the punishment of sin, our sin, by being nailed to a cross. The ultimate result of the identification process that started here at the baptism Hebrews chapter 4, verse verse 15, we're told, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So my first observation is that this tells me Jesus came to identify with me, to connect with me. The second observation we make is that I might need to actually rethink what pleases God. God's, God the Father, his affirmation that you are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased is really an amazing, radical statement when you begin to unpack what's actually being said. First, as his son, we learn that Jesus had always been God. God telling Jesus, he says, you are my beloved son. This is a statement of being, a statement of fact. It wasn't as though, and this is a common misconception, it wasn't as though that at this point in Jesus' life, that he goes from being the son of Mary and Joseph to now being the son of God. That he didn't, before this moment, find himself sinless and divine, but at this moment became sinless and divine, that somehow Jesus became God in this moment. That's not true. From the immaculate conception to the virgin birth, through the terrible twos and the early years of childhood, from his years as a middle schooler, high schooler, or young adult, as he transitioned from his early twenties to his late twenties and into his thirties, Jesus had always been the son of God. It was who he was. 100% man and God. The second thing that we learn here is that as his son, God had always loved Jesus. You are my beloved son, or literally you are the son that I love. I never really understood the implications of the imagery of the father-son relationship until I became a father. Christmas Eve of last year, Quincy was born into the world. And man, that first night was awesome. It was awesome because every little peep, every little cry, every little silence that night immediately brought Jess and I to our feet to check on Quincy. And why? It's because we loved him. Man, a love that you couldn't explain, that you couldn't define. And why? How? The reason I loved Quincy from that first night is because he was my only begotten son. He was my son. You see, Quincy had been alive for hours. He had done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. He had my love for one reason. He was my son. And this is what blows me away. You see, in my own story, that next morning, the doctor came and said that he wanted to take Quincy for observation to the, the, the NICU. And man, I was upset. They took our son away from us and placed him in this clean and sterilized room. The only way we could go and we could see Quincy would be to leave our room and walk down a hallway and enter that, they wouldn't let him leave. And man, I'll be honest. It was very difficult for me to allow Quincy, my son, to exit, to be removed from my presence. And you know, I thought about that in the moment. Here I was, I love this little poopy, stinky boy. For one reason, he was my son. And I was having the most difficult time letting him and trusting him into the care of educated, trained professionals. It was Christmas morning. And the thought dawned on me. I'm having a hard time entrusting my only begotten son to the hand of professionals because of my love. But God entrusted his only begotten son, the son and whom he loved not to the hands of professionals, but to two teenagers who had not a clue what they were going to do and why. You know, the only reason the father would send his beloved son to the world is because of his great love for you and I. The most common verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, really sums it up. For God so loved the world what, that he gave his only begotten son. You are my beloved son. As his son, God had always loved Jesus, but he gave Jesus because of his love for us. Blows my mind. The third thing, we see here, is as his son, God had always been pleased with Jesus. And this kind of comes and ties in with our our second observation. The phrase, well-pleased, can be translated, brings joy. Now, don't forget, and this is so easy to do, don't forget the context of what's happening. When the father uttered these words to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased, Jesus had spent... 30 years, he was 30 years old and he had not begun his earthly ministry. Jesus had instead spent his entire life in complete and utter obscurity. Jesus had spent his time engaging in a very rather simple lifestyle. Think about it. Jesus' entire life at this point, when God utters these words about the son, his entire life, he was a son. That was it, he was a son to his parents. His role in in life was to be a big brother to his siblings. I'm sure he was a good friend to those who knew him. He was a student and later became a carpenter by trade. He worked with his hands. Most scholars even believe that Joseph died at some point, making Jesus as a carpenter the principal breadwinner of his family. Jesus, his life at this point, he went to church faithfully. We're told that in scripture even given the indication that he maybe even filled in for the local rabbi when he needed to. He attended the Jewish feasts in Jerusalem. Jesus paid taxes. Jesus was involved in his local community. At this point, when the father looks at Jesus and says, "This this is the son that I love, that I'm so pleased in. He had done nothing. His life was so simple. He was a son, a big brother, He worked a job to provide for his family. Not a flashy job, he worked with his hands. He was blue collar and he went to church and he plugged into church and he was involved in society, but he had done nothing. When Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized by John, he had not performed a single miracle. He had not done anything to garner the attention of the power brokers of his day. This blows me away because Jesus had done nothing noteworthy. He wasn't a great preacher filling sanctuaries for multiple services. He wasn't leading an international ministry conglomerate. He wasn't hosting crusades or writing bestsellers. Jesus had not even died for the sins of the world. To say that Jesus had come out of nowhere would have been an understatement of the facts on the ground. His Facebook friends or Twitter followers were numbered by the tens of people, not by the thousands. But this is what's so incredible. Even with such a humble, nondescript, simple life of simple obedience, we're told that his life brought God incredible joy. God was well pleased with the life that Jesus had lived. Understand, God takes greater joy in the person you are, not the things that you do. We often think we have to do something for God's favor. We have to perform some great work or be engaged in some incredible cause. Somehow we've been convinced in church culture that providing for our family And being engaged with our family and being simply involved in our church is somehow below the qualifications of bringing God joy, that God wants us to do something great or grandiose. Jesus hadn't. And Jesus says, that's my son and I love him. I'm proud. I am pleased. I am pleased with his life. This entire story should change my outlook on the kind of life that God takes joy in? Do you realize that when God sees you, he says, that's that's my daughter in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. Our third observation for the baptism of Jesus is that humility leads to glory. We're told in scripture that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We often see that God uses very humble things in this world to do something grand, something glorious. Think about how humble, how incredibly humble the scene really is. It came to pass in those days that Jesus, a humble name, nothing flashy, that he came from Nazareth, a humble town, a truck stop, population 30, of Galilee. Truthfully, it's a humble region. It's a fishing town, fishing community, agricultural, kind of the middle of nowhere, and was baptized. It was a humble action by John. So Jesus, there was a humble submission in the Jordan, It was a humble river. You know, oftentimes that's one of the biggest disappointments when you go to Israel, you take a tour of Israel because you got in your mind, like the Jordan being something grand and glorious. You read about it all over the Bible. It's a dirty, gross little creek. It's kind of like, not even the Chattahoochee, it's like the Yellow River. Like it's gross. Like, Like you look at it, you go to be like, I am going to be baptized in the Jordan, right there where Jesus did. And you're on the shore and you're thinking, I'm gonna have to throw away all of these clothes because this is gross. I mean, I don't even think detergent's going to get that muck out of this clothes. It's horrible. It's a humble river. It's not like the Tigris or the Euphrates or the Nile or the Colorado River with rapids. It's a creek. It's pretty gross. Let me put it this way. You wouldn't eat the fish you caught out of it but we're told that immediately. A humble name, a humble town, a humble region, a humble act, humble submission and a humble river. And immediately, immediately following so much humility, we transition into something incredibly glorious. The sky being torn into two and the Holy Spirit descending and a voice coming from heaven. Humility transitioning into incredible glory. Isn't it true? God is in the business of taking the humble things of this world and making them glorious. Something that the world would write off. Someone that the world would say, not a chance, not a prayer. Not the people that made most likely to achieve or best looking in the yearbook. I mean that God would use the people with the braces and the big glasses that people don't even remember going to high school with you, that God would use those people to do something awesome. And why does he do that? So that he receives the glory. Our fourth and final observation. The baptism of Jesus illustrates for us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential for ministry. Jesus is beginning his ministry. Jesus is starting. Mark has chosen to use this story as his starting point, as the ultimate servant. And isn't it significant that we see here that before Jesus had done anything, that before Jesus engages in ministry of any kind, he is first baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to get into this in any prolonged detail, but in the New Testament, we find three roles for the Holy Spirit, each defined by a different Greek word. Run them th- we'll run through them quickly. First, the Holy Spirit is para, or literally with us, that the Holy Spirit comes alongside of every human being, convicting the world of sin and leading us to the cross. The second role of the Holy Spirit is in, E-N, the Greek word, or literally in, in us. He is with us and he is in us, indwelling us for regeneration. This is what happens when we come to the cross, we submit ourselves and we ask that the Lord would make us new, new birth, new life, the Holy Spirit coming inside of us, regenerating us, that we are now alive in the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, that the Holy Spirit comes epi- E-P-I, or literally, upon us, that this is something that happens beyond conviction and beyond regeneration, but happens for filling and for overflowing, for power, for strength. Now, clearly, in our story, the Holy Spirit wasn't working in Jesus' life, convicting him of sin. Jesus didn't receive the Holy Spirit for regeneration or for salvation. He didn't need that. Mark, though, is rather specific. Look again. The Spirit descended, how? Upon him like a dove. Before Jesus began his ministry, Jesus first found it essential to have the Holy Spirit come upon him for strength and for power. Traditionally, we call this act the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not conviction, not salvation, but for strength, for power to live the life that God has called us to. The implications and the significance of this point is pretty radical. Think about it, really. Examine yourself for a moment. If Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh, savior of the world, king of kings, lord of lords, if Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit present in his life, before he began his earthly ministry, how much more important you think it is for you and I to be baptized with the Holy Spirit for the ministry we've been called to. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit for ministry, you would think that if anyone could kind of like, yeah, I'm good Holy Spirit, I can do it, it would be Jesus, but Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. And so if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, he's our example, then don't you think we need it for our ministry? You know, the image, of water baptism in connection with the baptism of the Holy Spirit provides kind of an interesting insight into the implications of the event. It's true that what, that you get on you, whatever you've been baptized into. I mean, think about it, water baptism. You get baptized into the water, into the water, you come up, what what do you have on you? You're typically soaking wet. Like I've never been to a water baptism and like they've been baptized into the water and they come up and they're like totally dry. It's like unbelievable. Like that just doesn't happen. And so you get on you whatever you've been baptized into, but then it's also true that you often transfer to others that which you've gotten on you. Like the image, think about it for a moment. You go to an actual Christian baptism, your friend, your sibling, your spouse, gets baptized into the water. You're taking pictures, filming video. You're excited. This is an awesome moment. And they come out of the water, soaked from head to toe. And they get out of the pool. And what happens? I mean, you don't care what you're wearing. You just give them a big hug. And inevitably, what happens? You exit that hug and now you're quite soaking wet. Right? That what you're baptized into gets on you and then often is transferred to those you come in contact with. See what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit works the same way. When we're baptized into the Holy Spirit, we come out with what? The Holy Spirit overflowing, dripping from head to toe. And then who do we wanna rub off when people come in contact with us? The Holy Spirit. You know the truth of the matter is I really don't want, and you don't want me rubbing off at all. The old man Zach Adams, not a prayer, but you know I want every life that I come in contact with. I want the Holy Spirit to. I want to be overflowing so that what is what what's dripping, what's oozing with me, comes off on them. The Holy Spirit being baptized. Do you realize that you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit? for your ministry. Now, ministry. Okay, Zach, I'm really not in the ministry. Hogwash. You know, the ministry is not necessarily just what, this is my ministry. But you have a ministry? We've all been called to be ministers of the gospel? That some of you have a ministry of mom? And that your flock your congregation is your children, that that is your ministry commissioned by God. And guess what? You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be the best mom you can be. And and gentlemen, your ministry is your family. You're the high priest of your family. That's your ministry. You know, often when we try to fulfill that ministry on our own, man, we have a good tendency to screw it up, don't we? You see, we are in desperate need as men of the baptism of the Holy Spirit for that ministry. But some of you, in addition to that, your ministry is your job, your workplace, or the PTA or what you're involved with. If Jesus needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit for strength, for power, for enabling to fulfill that call, then we're fools to not need the same. To not desire the same. Now in a moment, we're going to continue in worship with the time we have remaining. And my exhortation to you, in addition to having communion available, that you take a moment. Do you know the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event? You read through the book of Acts, and we don't have time to lay this out, in any kind of a a, a hermeneutic or a real expositional way, real detailed. But you find that within the New Testament church, the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. And then later, the Holy Spirit would come upon them again. And then they would be in a prayer meeting. The Holy Spirit would come upon them again. The Holy Spirit was coming upon them all of the time. And they prayed for it, and they asked it, and they lived in it that we need a continual baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've come this morning and you're tired and you're wore out and you're frazzled and you've exhausted your resources. Maybe you've come here this morning saying, I can't do it anymore. I hate to break it to you, you could never do it. But Jesus wants to give you strength. He wants to provide you enabling. He wants to give you the power, not only to fulfill your ministry, but to live the life he's called you, the life of godliness. This morning, as we worship the Lord, the Bible tells us that that God is willing to, he will withhold no good gift to his children. And that all we have to do is ask and believe in faith. And so this morning, in addition to communion, as we worship the Lord, as we take time to meditate on what God has said to us through his word, Maybe you need to take an opportunity and to just pray, Lord, I need a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit come upon me to enable me to live the life you've called me to and to fulfill the ministry you've led me in. Four observations. A few questions. An incredible scene of activity.